Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. John 1, beginning at the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained it. Dear Father, this gospel and this passage are, are astounding because our Savior is astounding. And Father, we pray that you would tune our hearts to your word so that we would be receptive to what you have to show us of him, that we might be very good bearers of him in this world, and that any who are here today who do not know him might be brought to their knees in humility before Him to trust Him as the one and only Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you have uh, lived in the Dallas area for any length of time, you've no doubt noticed that God is bringing many people from many different parts of the world into this part of North Texas. And if you're one of those who, who tends to talk about Jesus Christ in your interactions with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with people you encounter as you're shopping, then you've also noticed that many of your old assumptions about how much people know of the Christ of the Bible are not necessarily still fitting. 
those assumptions often don't prove uh, to be borne out. There are many people who simply don't have a foundation of data, of knowledge about Jesus. More all the time. All around us. Now, if you're in a conversation with one of those people, John is a very good place to start. Because John goes all the way back to the beginning. (laughs) Even if you're in a conversation with someone who thinks that he knows a lot about the biblical Jesus, but in fact doesn't, John is a marvelous place to start. And John begins, John begins at the very beginning. I mean, the very beginning, right? And we're going to see that in a moment. The writer of this gospel is John, right? The apostle, the one who describes himself in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's an act of humility rather than naming himself every time he shows up in the narrative. John is second only to Paul when it comes to how many books and letters the Holy Spirit contributed to the canon of Scripture through this man. John finished out his life in exile on a prison island called Patmos from which he wrote down the amazing revelation that Jesus gave to him, which is the last book of the Bible. Most conservative scholars date the writing of John's Gospel somewhere between A.D. 85 and 95, which puts it toward the end of his life and makes it one of the very last books that the Holy Spirit delivered to the church. Bob Deffenbaugh, in what I still consider to be the best commentary on the Gospel of John, available, by the way, for free on Bible.org, says that 90%, over 90% of the material that's found in John's Gospel is unique to John's Gospel. John had access, by the time he wrote this, to the other three, what are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's apparent that John chose to fill in some gaps. He chose to, to address some things about Jesus that had not been perhaps fully addressed in the other Gospels, so that when you put them all together, we get a very nice and full picture. But the uniqueness of John's Gospel is not simply a function of which events from Jesus' earthly life and ministry he chose to include. No, the uniqueness of John's Gospel goes way beyond that. Because from the very first words in this, in this book, we see John stretching words to the very limits of what they're capable of conveying as he describes to us this one called the Word. From the beginning of this Gospel, it is unavoidably clear that the person of whom John is speaking is unlike any other person we have ever encountered. This book has a prologue, and that prologue is the first 18 verses that we're going to look at this morning. The heart of that prologue is found in two verses. The two verses that speak of Jesus Christ as the Word. That's verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. This book is John's spirit-breathed account of God the Son, the incomparable person of Jesus Christ, the eternally existing Creator God who became a man and dwelled among us. John's explicit purpose in writing this gospel is evangelistic. If you go to John chapter 20 and look at verses 30 and 31 toward the end of the, of the letter, John says, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. His purpose is evangelistic. So by the way, this is a great book for evangelists. We're going to look this morning at these, this 18-verse prologue, and we're going to focus our attention on the relationship of Jesus Christ to six things. Six things. Time, God, creation, life, light, and man. Time, God, creation, life, light, and man. The first six words establish the relationship of Christ to time. In the beginning was the Word. Now, where have you heard those words, in the beginning, before in the Bible? Yeah, you got it. Genesis 1. Probably the easiest Bible trivia question you'll ever be asked. It is no coincidence that all six of those themes have their first introduction in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Time, God, creation, life, light, and man. John takes us all the way back to the beginning. Actually, he takes us back to before the beginning of creation. Before anything that we see with our eyes, anything that we can see with the Hubble telescope, anything that we can see with the most sophisticated electron microscope ever even existed, the Word was. In verse 15, John the Apostle will relate the words of John the Baptist where he said, this, Jesus, is whom of, him of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. But the Gospel of Luke tells us that John the Baptist was born to Elizabeth before Jesus was born to Mary. In chapter 8, we'll see Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am. How long ago was Abraham? Fifteen hundred years before this, not before this, but before this. And in chapter seventeen, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus calls out in prayer to his Father, and he asks his Father to restore to him the glory which he had with the Father before the world was made. This is all perfectly in keeping with what God declared long before Jesus came to earth through His prophets. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, one whose goings forth are from long ago. From how long ago? (laughs) From the days of eternity. From the days of eternity. The one that John calls the Word always existed. That's his relationship to time. Next, John explains the relationship of the Word to God. John will make it very clear a little later in this introduction that the Word became a man. But that's not where he starts. (laughs) Matthew and Luke within the first two chapters of each of those Gospels, talk about the birth of Jesus. Mark, in his Gospel, jumps straight to the baptism of Jesus and to the beginning of his earthly ministry. But John launches his Gospel with a very, very different focus. Going back to before the creation of the world, he says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he reiterates in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Now John is being very, very intentional here to establish the deity, the godness of Christ before he ever comes around to talking about the humanity of Christ. No other words could possibly express this glorious truth more clearly. The, The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, A lot of people have trouble with putting those two statements together. But if you've you've followed our brother Jimmy's class on the Trinity that's been going on for the last many weeks, uh, you'd have no problem with that at all. How is it that a person can be with God and at the same time be God? The Trinity. A triune God. Three persons in one essence. In fact, you're going to find the Trinity all over the Gospel of John. By the way, if you have an an iOS device or an Android, you can get your podcast app and you can go to communitybible.org and you can download and listen to all of those audios of Jimmy's class. And I highly suggest that you do that because it's really good. We will see Jesus make both indirect and very, very direct, very direct claims to His own deity throughout this great Gospel. We'll even hear Jesus refer to Himself as I Am, which is the meaning of Yahweh, the covenant name that God gave to Moses as He named Himself. It was God's name. The relationship of Jesus to God is that Jesus is God. Jesus, the Son of God, is God the Son. Time, God, creation. Jesus' relationship to creation is that He is the Creator. Verse 3, All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. 
Did John leave any bases uncovered there? According to Genesis chapter 1, what was the active agent in God's amazing work of creation? Now, you might say, well, God was, and you'd be right. But what, what I'm asking is, who was the active agent in the sense that, what did God do, what did God do that resulted in the creation of everything that exists? He spoke! The active agent in the work of creation was the Word of God. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And six more times in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and everything else came into being. Everything in heaven and on earth came into being. That's power. (laughs) Amen. If you head north on Central Expressway on any work day and you get up there far enough, you're going to run into a whole bunch of heavy machinery, a lot of men in hard hats working all day, very hard, on highway construction project. That's the way it works when men try to build things on a grand scale. It requires lots of heavy equipment, lots of people, lots of money, and as we all know, if we drive those highways lots and lots of time. But when God created everything that exists, He spoke. Everything that we see with our eyes, everything that we can see with the Hubble telescope, everything that we see with the the most sophisticated electron microscope, everything that's either too small or too big or too far away to see it all, and everything in the angelic realm that is invisible to us, God created with nothing but the spoken word. And that agent through whom the triune God created everything in earth, on earth and in heaven wasn't a what, it was a he. It was a person. And that person is the word of God, Jesus Christ. God speaking creation is Jesus doing creation. Jesus is the Word of God by whom everything came into being. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him, and for Him, and He is, He is, He exists before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So He's not just the Creator of all things, He's the one who keeps everything together. The atoms in your body stay together by the power of His Word. That's His relationship to creation. Time, God, creation, Life. Verse 4. In Him was life. A little later in chapter 5, Jesus will say, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. How does He do that? Well, He says, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. 
For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so, He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. See, Jesus is the source of all life. Jesus doesn't merely have life. He doesn't merely possess life. Life is intrinsic to who He is. And He gives that life to whom He wishes. By the way, that also makes Him the owner of all life. Which is a very important theme of Scripture. This theme that Jesus is the life is huge in the Gospel of John. There are some chapters where it is staggeringly important. <laughs> like chapter 6. Time. God. Creation. Life. Light. The connection in this passage between life and light is critically important. John says in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light. Now why does light exist? Well, to make things visible. To make things seen. And lest we get the imperfect confused with the perfect, the light that we behold with these physical eyes is just a very dim preview of the astounding light, the true light that we behold when God is made visible to us. The light that comes to us by which we see God only comes when the life comes to us. The life is the light of men. We'll get back to that in a second. Verse 5 says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. If you want to know why I chose the word overcome instead of comprehend, look at the Net Bible notes. They're very good on this one. See, darkness can't overcome light. Because darkness is the absence of light. Light overcomes darkness. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And there's no other true light. There's no other explanation of God. There is no other knowledge of God. There is no other spiritual sight. Jesus is the subject of the entire Bible. And the Bible is where we behold Him and where we receive this light. But we still can't see it unless He enables us to see it. And when Jesus finishes bringing the kingdom of God from heaven to earth, Revelation 21 and 22, there's only going to be one light, one source of light whether physical or spiritual, just one source of light. The sun, the moon, the stars, they won't be around anymore. John makes it clear in this book that Jesus is not only the source of true light, He's the source of true sight. In chapter 9, after Jesus heals a man blind from birth, that man, <laughs> rather sarcastically I think, points out to the Jewish religious leaders that they're forgetting something. See, they're, they're trying to figure out who this Jesus is, and he says, well, I have a clue for you. 
Since the beginning of history, no one has ever healed a man blind from birth. Never. Men have been raised from the dead, but no one's ever healed a man blind from birth. That should tell you a little bit about who this guy is that healed me. John 1 verse 4, the life that comes from Christ is the light of men. No man can see true light without true life, and true life comes from Jesus. You know why I think God withheld the miracle of healing a man, a blind man, until Jesus came from heaven to earth? (laughs) Because the light comes from the life, and the life comes from Jesus. He is the life, and His life is the light that enlightens every man. Jesus displays God to all men, but not all men see Him. Most remain blind. Time, God, creation, life, light, and man. What's the relationship of this one called the Word to man? Well, I believe John begins to address that question in earnest in verse 6. He says, there came a man sent from God. (laughs) Now, considering what you've seen in the first five verses, who has this prologue been all about thus far? Jesus. So when he says, there came a man sent from God, you might be tempted to think he's going to say, and that man was Jesus. No, he's not there yet. He's talking about John the Baptist. Now, why would he put... Verses about John the Baptist into a prologue that's all about the transcendent Christ. Well, for one thing, he's introducing themes that he's going to develop throughout the book. And the very first theme that he gets to in verse 19 is the witness of John the Baptist. But I don't think that he could have introduced John the Baptist then. I think there's more going on here. I struggled for a while to figure out how this didn't amount to an interruption in an amazing passage about Christ. And then I was sitting on Wednesday at a tire store waiting for a bad tire on my wife's van to get replaced. And I was sitting there in the waiting room with my Bible open and my laptop in my lap. And and then it hit me. And when it did, it brought me to tears. Not like uncontrolled sobbing, but just tears. And this gentleman who was sitting you know, across from me in the waiting room, I guess the combination of the Bible and the tears was too much for him, so he got, he got up and walked out. <laughs> in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said that John the Baptist was not merely the greatest prophet who was ever born. He was the greatest man who was ever born. But here when John the Apostle speaks of John the Baptist with Jesus as the reference point, everything he says is about the humility of John the Baptist and the exaltation of Christ. John, he says, was not the light. But he came to bear witness to the light. And as he faithfully bore that witness, John the Baptist said, as we saw in verse 15, This Jesus is He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. And when John the Baptist is asked just a little bit later in this same chapter why he's baptizing if he's not the Christ, 
What does he say? Chapter 1, verse 26. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And if you come over to chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. Why? (laughs) Because He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. I believe the reason that John the Apostle introduces John the Baptist right here in this prologue is to draw a stark contrast between creature and creator, between image bearer and image source, between redeemed and redeemer, between men and God. John the Baptist is a marvelous template for us who exist to glorify Jesus Christ. We must decrease and He must increase. Why? (laughs) Because He who is from above is above all. The first thing that I believe John tells us in his prologue about Jesus' relationship to man is that Jesus is infinitely higher than we. He is above all by absolute measure. The second thing that he tells us about Jesus' relationship to man is that Jesus came to man, but man rejected Him. Verses 10 and 11, chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, And those who were His own did not receive Him. Not only did this godless world not know Jesus, but His own covenant people rejected Him. They did not receive Him. But some did. Some did receive Him. Verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. (laughs) Amen. Now, who are those people? Well, it says those who believe in His name. Those who believe in His name. Our discussion in the worship this morning was about the character of God. You know what the name means? The name of Jesus? It means His character. Those who believe in His character and who He is and what is intrinsically true of Him. All the things we've been talking about and a whole lot more. Now that is the theme that you're going to find all over the place in the Gospel of John. Those who believe in the name of Jesus are saved. And they have life. They have true life. The word believe, with Jesus as its object, occurs nine times in Matthew's Gospel, fifteen times in Mark's Gospel, ten times in Luke's Gospel, Anyone want to hazard a guess how many times it occurs in John's Gospel? Ninety-five. Ninety-five times. 
All who come to believe in Jesus Christ, all who trust in Jesus Christ are made children of God. And verse 13 tells us that they are... And by, by the way, I'm not arguing that about which of those comes first. Okay, I know there are people with different views. The point is, those who believe are the ones who are the children of God. Verse 13 tells us that they are born into that new identity as children of God by a very different kind of birth than mankind's ever heard of before. He says, they're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born of God. Now that's another thing that you're going to see spoken of later in this gospel is that spiritual rebirth. So the third thing that John the Apostle tells us about the relationship of Jesus Christ to man is that Jesus is the Savior of men. And then comes the real zinger, the how. (laughs) How the life and light of God came to fallen men. How God has made spiritual rebirth a reality for fallen men. Verse 14 contains perhaps the most worldview-defining declaration you will ever encounter. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God didn't just come to man. He became man. The relationship of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to mankind is that He who was always God put on humanity and dwelt among us. He came from heaven to earth to become a man. Why? Well, In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, John, the same John, says, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Why did Jesus become a man? To save men. Jesus put on manhood to save us. But make no mistake, He's not from around here. One of the most dominant themes in John's Gospel is the sent nature of Jesus. God the Son was sent from His eternal home from the company of God the Father and God the Spirit. He was sent to earth to put on manhood in order to save lost, dead men. But He's not from around here. He was sent. I did another little word study on that word, sent. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says He was sent by His Father. One of those is in the parable of the vineyard owner. Twice in Mark. Three times in Luke. Thirty-seven times in the Gospel of John. And if you add to that the 13 times that Jesus says He came down from heaven to earth, that's 50 times that the sent nature of Jesus is set before us. Think John's making a point? God's making a point through John? 
Jesus is fully and perfectly man. But He's not from around here. Because He is fully and perfectly God. He is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other than you and I are. He is the Creator God and we're His creatures. Yet He left His eternal dwelling place. He left... It's astounding what He left. He left a perfection of unity and love and fellowship and communion with the Father and the Spirit. And He came down to earth and He suffered all the ills of humanity. He had to live in this cursed place with people like us. But above all, He had to go to a cross to pay the eternal debt of our sin. In another really good commentary, J.C. Ryle, the one that Spurgeon calls a, a prize. Listen to these words from Ryle. Would we know the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Let us often read these first five verses of the Gospel of John. What kind of being the Redeemer of mankind must needs be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners? If no one less than the eternal God, the Creator and Preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world, then sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men suppose. The right measure of sin's sinfulness is the dignity of Him who came into the world to save sinners. If Christ is so great, then sin must indeed be sinful. Jesus became man to save men because nobody else could. I want to finish up by looking a little more closely at verses 14 to 18. In verse 14, again, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there, dwelled, is tabernacled. It's an Old Testament term. He set up his tent. And what was the whole point of the tabernacle and of the temple in the Old Testament? Well, Exodus 29, God said, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it will be consecrated by my glory. A couple of verses later, God says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. The point of the tabernacle was God dwelling in the midst of His people. Now John says that this Creator God who, who is the Word of God became flesh and He tabernacled among us. <laughs> See, the earthly tabernacle and temple were pictures of a far greater reality and that far greater reality is Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. They were symbols of which Jesus is the substance. And just as God told Moses that the earthly tabernacle would be consecrated, made holy by His presence, so John tells us that when Jesus came to dwell among us, we beheld His glory. Whose glory? Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
The glory of Jesus is the glory of His Father. John, by the way, is not talking about Christ's glory in the physical sense. Not the Shekinah glory, not the visible glory of God, not a cloud, not a fire. 700 years before Jesus came from heaven to earth, in Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah described what Jesus would look like when He came and dwelled among us. And how did He describe Him? Well, He said, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He says, like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Does that sound like a glorious physical appearance? The glory of God, and by the way, John's the only one who does not talk about the transfiguration, so that I don't believe is what he's referring to here at all. The glory of God that we behold in Jesus Christ is the same glory that John the Apostle and the other disciples beheld in Jesus Christ every single day that he walked on this earth. It was the glory of his character. Which fits perfectly because how does John describe that glory right here? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You ever think of the glory of God as God's character? You should. In Exodus chapter 34, when chapter 33 and 34, when Moses said, God, please show me your glory. What did God show him? God hid the fullness of his physical glory. He put his hand between Moses and himself, so Moses couldn't see that because he would have dropped dead if he had seen it. What did God show Moses? Exodus 34, 6. God gave Moses a proclamation of his character. The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Or, if you want to put it concisely, full of grace and truth. And by the way, the way the truth part develops is that means He's also just and He punishes sin. Full of grace and truth. The one true God became flesh and dwelt among us. And the disciples who walked with Him and ate with Him and watched Him endure temptation and persecution and ridicule and torture and finally watched Him go willingly to a cross to bear upon Himself the penalty for their sin, for our sin, for the sin of... for all sin. What they beheld was the glory of His character. Incomparable character. Unfathomable character. The character of the one who is full of grace and truth. Not merely gracious and truthful, but full of grace and truth as He is full of life and light. Full to overflowing. Full in perfect measure. Full with all the glorious and majestic character of God. And finally, to me, here's the most amazing thing of all. Verses 16 and 17, For of His fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, there's those two things again. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Realized how? Realized in us. 
received by us. Given by Him and received by us. It's amazing. This incomparable person who always existed, who is God, who created everything in heaven and on earth, who is the life and whose life is the light of men, This is the Word who took on flesh and dwelled among us. And in Him, we not only behold the glory of God's character, we who believe in Him receive the glory of God's character. We become bearers in these earthen vessels of the character of the Most High God. I loved our worship this morning. The character of God is not only our security, beloved, the character of God is our reason for existing. To show off, to display the character of our God is why we're here. And it's why Jesus saved us. It's why He gave us that true life. That's real life. That's real life. And the only way you will come to have it if you don't already have it is by believing, putting your faith in the name, the character of this person, Jesus Christ. Dear Father, make us true witnesses and true followers of the true light. In the name of our Creator God, our life, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.